Good morning. My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online as well. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Matthew, the eight days that changed the world. And this morning's message is entitled Extravagant Love. Extravagant Love. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, I pray that through the reading and preaching of your word, that we would see afresh just how much you love us, and that it would spark in us a desire to give all of ourselves in worship to you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Parenting requires that we teach our children what it means to love God and to love others. As parents, we're called to raise our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. But we would be sadly mistaken if we think that 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 instruction is a one-way street, us to them. The reality is, is that there are a number of lessons that we can learn from our children as well. One of the more profound lessons I've learned from my children is how to forgive. There have been many times when I have sinned against my children. I've been angry. I've assumed the worst. I've judged them wrongly. I've been unkind or impatient. And yet every single time, I think without fail, I can't actually think of a time without fail, that I've gone to them and asked them to forgive me, they have freely and fully forgiven me. And without any hesitation. They hug me. I love you. I forgive you. And we move forward together. Their quickness to forgive, it pierces my heart, because I'm so often slow to forgive myself. I, I want my pound of flesh. I want to know that the person who has sinned against me feels the pain that they have caused me. And when I'm convinced that they now know what it felt like to be me, then I will extend forgiveness to them. And when I see my children's heart to forgive, the contrast between my heart and their heart, it convicts me. It shows me God's heart to forgive and it challenges me to love and forgive as God in Christ has forgiven me and as my children have forgiven me. This morning our passage is a study in contrasts. On the one hand we have the religious leaders and Judas who are seeking to betray Jesus. They want to murder him and they're doing so out of greed. Greed for power and greed for money. And on the other hand we have a woman who holds nothing back offering this extravagant gift of love in worship and adoration to Christ. In this contrast, it is meant to pierce our hearts. It's meant to impress upon us this question, who are we in the story? Are we among the religious leaders who love power and influence and are willing to exchange Jesus in order to hold on to it? Are we like Judas who is willing to exchange Christ for money, or are we like this woman who is willing to hold nothing back in devotion to Christ? Main point of our message this morning is this God calls us to hold nothing back in our expression of love for Jesus. God calls us to hold nothing back in our expression of love to Jesus. The sermon has two points it's built around the characters in the story. The first point has to do with the religious leaders and Judas. And the second point is about the woman. So point number one, the religious leaders and Judas, greedy for power and money. In our passage, Matthew uses a pretty common literary device 
Uh, it's called an inclusio. It's just a fancy word for bookends. Or if you want to think of a hamburger, it's the two buns on each side that highlight what's going on in the middle. And what we have on either end of this inclusio or these bookends are the religious leaders on one end, and then we have Judas on the other end. And in between, we have this woman who offers this extravagant gift to God. And these are meant to hold in sharp relief both the greed of the religious leaders, the greed of Judas, and the generosity of this woman. Now, our passage opens with two important verses, and they signal a key transition in the book of Matthew. First, they signal that Jesus has finished all of his teaching. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, scholars typically break up the book of Matthew into five large chunks that are made up of action and teaching, and then this next chunk, action teaching. And we are now at the end of that fifth large chunk. All of the action has happened and all the teaching has taken place that's now closing out this fifth section, and we're now going to solely action. We are now in the week of Christ's passion, and he's there to do what he has been called to do and what his whole life has been pointing towards, namely suffering, death, and resurrection. From this point forward, Jesus is moving towards the cross. Secondly, up to this point, Jesus has alluded to his suffering and death, but what's striking about this final instance is just how near at hand it is. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. What the disciples had misunderstood and what they'd also dreaded is now finally upon them. The time of Jesus' suffering and death has arrived. Now Matthew immediately shifts to this scene in the palace of the high priest where Caiaphas, the the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders, they are gathered. And the religious leaders, they had longed for quite some time to get rid of Jesus. But all of this tension has finally come to a climax, and they now have now gathered together so that they can come up with a scheme to secretly arrest Jesus and put him to death. And the nature of this plot, it reveals both the character of the plotters, and it reveals, it reveals the character of the plotters, namely that they are both wicked and brazenly hypocritical. So first, they wanted to arrest Jesus and execute him in secret circumventing any and all due process, whether it be a religious court or a secular court. Second, they wanted to do it after the feast because they didn't want the people to get angry. They know that the people love Jesus, and so how can we do this in such a way that it's in secret, we can put him to death, and that no one will be angry with us? And lastly, they are doing all of this while preparing for the Passover feast. So there are these religious leaders who are seeking to purify themselves in preparation for one of the high holy days of the year, And while doing so, they are secretly plotting to kill the Son of God. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, this type of hypocrisy was nothing new to the religious leader Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. Josephus tells us that Caiaphas was adept at political and ecclesiastical maneuvering. He was a genius at remaining in the good graces of the Romans. And what had happened when the Romans came to power is what used to be a lifelong appointment to high priest, they would make an annual appointment. What they were trying to do is decentralize the power. They don't want one person in power long enough that they can create an insurrection against the Romans. But somehow Caiaphas, normally would have been a one-year appointment, actually was in power for 18 years, from A.D. 18 through A.D. 36. In other words, he was a master of intrigue and duplicity. And so we see this in this Passover plot that he has. 
He's trying to figure out a way, how can I get rid of Jesus who's standing in the way of me keeping my authority and my power? And how can I do so in such a way that I don't upset the Romans or the crowds which help to keep me in power? Now, Jesus described these religious leaders and their hypocrisy and love of position and power just a few chapters earlier in Matthew. Here's how he describes them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. In short, Caiaphas, along with all of these other religious leaders, they longed to hold their position of power and influence, and they were therefore willing to exchange the life of Jesus in order to do so. Now, as ugly as the betrayal of the religious leaders was, it was the betrayal of Judas that cuts all the more deeply. It's Judas' story that provides the other bookend of our passage. We had the religious leaders, and now we look at Judas. Look with me, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So before Matthew even mentions mentions his name, do you notice what he calls him? He says he's one of the twelve. One who'd been with Jesus for three years at this point. One who had been personally called by Jesus to follow him. One who had sat under his teaching, who had seen his Miracles, who had witnessed his love and his mercy and his power. One of the twelve, Judas, went to the chief priests and offered up Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. What's hard to understand is why? Why? Why would Judas do this? We can never know for sure exactly what his motivations were, but it seems... That a love of money was eating at his soul and it seemed to prepare him to do just about anything in order to get it. If indeed it was simple greed, it provides the clearest demonstration of all of history that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We're never going to ultimately know the reason why Judas did what he did. But what we do know is that Judas determined to betray his Lord and his friend and to do so... For 30 pieces of silver. So as we observe the religious leaders in Judas, we must ask ourselves, do we bear any resemblance to them? So here's a question to consider. Is there anything that you love so much that you're willing to trade Christ in order to obtain it? And if so, what's your price? What's your price? For Caiaphas and the other religious leaders, it was their greed for power and for influence that drove them to betray Christ. This love of power, popularity, love of being in the in crowd, does it, for instance, by your silence at work or at school? 
Are there any ways in which you are willing to trade away Christ in order to satisfy your desire for power and influence and stature and all the respect that comes with them? For Judas, it was literal a literal price, 30 pieces of silver. Out of a love of money, he betrayed the Son of God. What is your price? Is love of money drawing you away from your love of God? Money is a, a powerful thing. Despite our best efforts, it's alluring. It promises peace and comfort and pleasure and protection from much of the suffering of this life. It's tempting for us to exchange our love of God for a love of money. There's a reason why Jesus says in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we've considered the religious leaders and we've considered Judas. Now we can turn to consider the woman. Point number two, the woman, extravagant love. So let's set the scene, verses 6 and 7. Look with you there. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now if we're going to piece together uh, this story from Matthew, Mark, and John, the host of this party is Simon the leper, and the place it's taking place is in Bethany, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem. And the guests at the meal are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the woman who anoints Jesus isn't named in Matthew and Mark, but from John it is clear it was Mary, Martha and Lazarus's sister, who anointed Jesus. Now the first thing to note is the extravagance of the gift offered. Mark tells us that the ointment was made of pure nard and that it was, would have been sold for more than 300 denarii, a full year's wages for a common laborer. There's little doubt that this jar of precious ointment was a family heirloom. It was probably kept as a protection against financial ruin. Worst case scenario, we come to financial ruin, we can sell this and we will have provision for our family. And so it would have been shocking to those who were gathered to see that she then takes the, the top off of this alabaster flask and pours out something that's worth likely thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in today's dollars. And we're undoubtedly meant to contrast the extravagance of this woman's love with the plans of Caiaphas and Judas to put Jesus to death. We're also meant to contrast her extravagant love with the response of the disciples. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, on one level, the disciples have a point. Jesus himself, in the prior chapter in the sermon we heard last week makes a great point of saying it's really important for us to care for the least among us. We should give to the poor. And this bottle of perfume, which was worth such an extravagant sum, would have had a huge impact on the poor that surrounded them. That being said, their response to this act of love, it seems out of place. Indeed, their response is all the more poignant because in John's account, it is Judas who is the spokesperson for the disciples who is saying, why all of this waste? We could have given this to the poor. The one who's about to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver 
is all uptight. And do you know why John tells us? Because he loved money. He was in charge of the communal purse. And whenever lots of money would come in, he would take some for himself. So beyond Judas's love of money and the disciples' apparent love for the poor, they were missing what was ultimately important, something that the woman understood. Yes, we are to love the poor, but we are to love Jesus more than anything or anyone else. Not only are we to love Jesus more than money, which is obvious, we are to love Jesus more than even good things, even giving money away to those less fortunate. Jesus makes this clear when he addresses the disciples. Look with me at verses 10 to 13. But Jesus, aware of their indignation, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. So in response to the disciples' indignation, Jesus comes to Mary's defense. He tells the disciples, stop bothering her. Stop troubling her. He then corrects them. What the disciples viewed with indignation, Jesus viewed as a beautiful and good thing. And in so doing, Jesus helps them to see that yet again Mary has chosen the good portion Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha, which is the same Mary and Martha that are in Simon's house? In that story, Jesus is over at Mary and Martha's house, and Mary, like the disciples, she or Martha, like the disciples, she's busy serving and doing things. And where's Mary? She's hanging out with Jesus. She's sitting at his feet, listening to him. And so Martha's irritated. Mary, get up, help me. Can't you see all the work that I'm doing? And then she enlists Jesus to correct Mary. And what does Jesus say to Martha? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And Jesus answers the disciples in a similar way in our passage. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Is it good to serve like Martha? Of course it is. Is it good to give money away to the poor like the disciples wanted to do? Absolutely. But Jesus calls us to a devotion that doesn't exclude good works, but it does transcend those. Meaning that Jesus wants us to love him more than anyone or anything else. Jesus then goes on to point to the greater meaning of Mary's act of devotion. In verse 12, he reveals that by anointing him, she's actually preparing him for burial. It's highly unlikely that Mary would have understood the implications of what she was doing. But in reality, what she was actually doing was preparing Jesus for burial. So the normal practice is someone dies, they pass away, and the loved ones prepare the body. And one of the things that they do is they anoint that body in order to cover over the smell of what is now a decaying body. But in just a few days, Jesus is going to be brutally executed on the cross. And there will be no time for those who love him to prepare his body for burial. If you remember, some of the women actually two days after his death go to the tomb. And what were they intending to do? They're intending to anoint his body. What they were unable to do in paying their respects on Good Friday, they went to the tomb to do two days later. And yet, he was not there because he had risen 
from the dead. So in this act of loving devotion, what Mary is actually doing, much more than she realized, is preparing the body of her Lord for his burial. Jesus ends then with this astounding statement in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's a rare thing when a prophecy from the Bible is fulfilled in our hearing. But Jesus tells us that whenever this gospel is proclaimed, doing exactly what we are doing right now, when we tell this story of her, she will be honored in line with what Jesus has promised. And that's precisely what is happening this morning. The 19th century preacher J.C. Ryle says it this way in his commentary on Matthew. Listen to his words, which I think are profound. The prophecy of Jesus about this woman is receiving a fulfillment every day before our eyes. Wherever the gospel of St. Matthew is read, her action is known. Listen to this. The deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are as completely forgotten as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is recorded in 150 different languages and is known all over the globe. The Bible is now translated into 700 plus language, which means 5.75 billion people on this globe have access to this story. And each and every time they read it, she is honored for her act of devotion to Christ. Now there's one word I want to highlight from verse 13 to conclude this message this morning, and that word is gospel. Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, this gospel, this good news, it gives rise to this woman's devotion. As amazing as the love of this woman is, it pales in comparison to the love of Christ. If you leave here this morning and the hero of this story is the woman, you will have missed the full meaning of what is actually being said here. The true hero of this story is not the woman who honors Christ. The true hero of this story is Christ himself who is anointed by this woman. You see, Mary's love for Jesus, it was an overflow of the love of Jesus that he had already given to her and to her sister Martha and to her brother Lazarus. In the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we see Jesus' love for this family. When Lazarus fell ill, Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Jesus loved Lazarus. And when Jesus received word from Martha and Mary about Lazarus being ill, it says, now Jesus loved Mary and Martha. And then what does he do in response? He then goes to Lazarus' tomb and he sees there all the people who are mourning, including those whom he loves, Mary and Martha. And what happens to Jesus? He's moved with compassion and he himself weeps. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus was about to demonstrate his love in the most profound way imaginable. In just two days, he would suffer the agonies of mockery and beating and whipping and crucifixion. And more profoundly, he was going to suffer the wrath and curse of God against sin and separation from his father, whom he had known from time immemorial. Also that Mary and Martha and Lazarus might know love and forgiveness. It's this love, the love of Christ for sinners that drew forth from Mary and should draw forth from us acts of extravagant love and devotion. Do you know this love? Do you know it? 
Do you know the love of God for you? Do you know it so much that he offered his son for you that you might know unending love and forgiveness? The good news of the gospel is that you can know this unending love as a free gift of grace received simply by faith given to all who believe. And if you do know this love, is the love of God for you overflowing in your love of him? The woman Mary is surrounded by those whose love is either absent or has grown cold. The religious leaders, Judas and the disciples, they're meant to reveal to us the temptations that can often crowd out love of God and devotion for Christ. Namely, love of reputation, love of money, and even doing good things. What Mary reveals to us is that Jesus' extravagant love for us calls forth an extravagant love from us. A love that transcends all other loves. The question is, is there anything that you are holding back from Christ? Are you willing to give your all, all of your being, in response to Christ's love as an act of love to him? Does your heart say, Lord, whatever you want, it's yours. Whatever you want. Or does it say, I've given enough, let some others take up the slack. Or Lord, you can have all of me, just not this. If we are to give all of ourselves to Christ, we must believe this. That no offering lavished on Jesus is ever wasted. There's nothing that so delights the heart of Christ as loving devotion from his disciples, which are given to him freely from hearts of love. And the other beautiful thing we must believe is that no sacrifice made to Jesus is ever forgotten. It seems improbable that one woman's present to Jesus would be recounted in the preaching of the gospel all throughout the world and down through the centuries, but that is exactly the case. These twin facts, facts that nothing done for Jesus is wasted and nothing ever done for Jesus is forgotten, it should stir our hearts as disciples of Christ. It should give birth to a love and an affection that makes us willing to open the flask of our hearts and to pour out all of our love and affection and worship to Christ because it will never be wasted and it will never be forgotten. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would do two things, that you would convict our hearts where love is absent or has grown cold, and that out of that your Holy Spirit might give us a fresh and abounding love and affection for Jesus Christ, who spared nothing to love us and save us. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.